This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. The current trend in practice is evidence-based medicine, but what does this really mean for the busy clinician? Do you just read the summaries or abstracts of research articles? Does your head spin when colleagues and drug representatives quote research studies? With me today is Tom Bartal, nurse practitioner at the Richmond Area Health Center in Richmond, Maine, and we're discussing research made easy, how to quickly and accurately evaluate research articles, or as Tom says, learn how to double your chance of winning the lottery. Hello, Tom. Welcome to ReachMD. Hello, Mimi. Thanks for having me on your show. Can you explain the comparison that you use with playing the lottery and making sense out of clinical research? Sure. I had heard a lot about research studies and how wonderful certain drugs were cutting chances of a heart attack by, say, 50%, for example, and thought, I wonder if this is too good to be true. So I decided to look into it a little more thoroughly. I had learned about some statistical significance in research classes, but wondered what was really clinically significant, what would make a difference for the patient. Research statistics can be complicated, and I wanted an easy example to use to understand it myself and to share with other people. So I decided to use a lottery because many people understand that. And typically in a state lottery, someone has a 1 in 18 million chance of winning the lottery if they buy one ticket. I thought, well, what would it be to double your chance of winning the lottery? And that would be buying two tickets, giving you two in 18 million chance, which was not a big deal, really. We often hear studies, chance of cutting the stroke in half. If your risk of stroke initially is low, if your baseline risk is low, then it doesn't do much. So really wanted to see what's the magic in all these things and how can I see how that impacts patients. So the whole lottery example is to show that some things really don't make a difference and some things obviously do. And how can we tell the difference in a research study? How did you get interested in research and speaking on this subject, Tom? When I took research classes in both graduate and undergraduate, I found them very boring. I had the oldest professor in the department teaching me in both cases, and they were trying to prepare me to do research, which I didn't know if I ever wanted to do. So the classes were quite boring. What I didn't learn was how to read research. And so when I started seeing all this information, it almost seemed too good to be true. Some of it was from marketing pressures. Some of it was from drug reps visiting me. I wanted to really learn what this research meant and how to share that with other clinicians so we could make easy use of this important research. Tom, what kind of data or statements were you hearing that made you question the clinical effectiveness of some medications? Well, maybe some of the data just seemed too good to be true. It almost seemed like we should put statins in the water so everyone was drinking them from the marketing data. I also, as I read through some of the journals, even New England Journal and JAMA, which I thought were the gold standard journals, I was finding some published studies of data that wasn't even statistically significant, let alone clinically significant. So I was reading this and then reading abstracts and saying, that's not what the article really said when I read the summary or the abstract. So I wanted to find out more about how we could see what's really important from these studies in a way that didn't take up too much time or have to be a statistician to understand. Yeah, important point. And many clinicians that are listening took their research courses a number of years ago. So remind us, what is the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance? Statistical significance means typically the p-value. The difference is less than or equal to 0.05, which means 95% chance that that effect is from whatever the variable is that's being tried, in this case, often a drug. Clinical significance, to me, means it makes a health difference for the particular patient such as doubling your chance to win the lottery. For the person who's already buying 10,000 tickets, 
if we double their chance, they have a much bigger effect of doubling their chance compared to the person who says, say, buys one ticket, or many people buy zero tickets and to double their chance wouldn't do anything. So what does this data mean with a particular drug or a particular intervention? Is this going to have a significant impact on a person's life, or is this all statistical? Can you explain the difference between absolute risk reduction versus relative risk reduction? That's a great question and real important when we're looking at this kind of data. What we often hear is what's called the relative risk reduction, often abbreviated as RRR. And it's really a proportional reduction compared to the control or the placebo. Think of it this way. Let's say I own a store and I have multiple items for sale varying from $1 to $10,000. And I tell you, Mimi, you can have any item in my store for half price, 50% off. Now, you probably would pick one of the more expensive items. If you pick a dollar item, you get 50 cents off. If you pick my $10,000 item or new car or whatever it is, and you get 50% off, that's going to be $5,000 off. Which one is more significant to you if you're choosing that? Obviously, the more expensive item. Right, and both discounts are 50%. So when you're looking at relative risk reduction, you're looking at how did it compare to placebo in a a proportional way or percentage way. As we said, that would be the 50% off in my store. Now, absolute risk reduction in that same example might be likened, which one did you get the most discount for? Again, the dollar item you took for half price, you say 50 cents. That would be your absolute reduction. Or in the case of a study, your absolute risk reduction, you're just subtracting the baseline cost what the placebo did from the sale price or what the intervention did. Your absolute risk reduction in the $10,000 items of $5,000 reduction in price. That's your absolute reduction. So both of the times I gave you 50% off, and that would be relative risk reduction, but an absolute risk reduction, we're saying, how much did it really reduce it? And both numbers are important. I'm not really saying one number is more important than the other, but I think we need to look at both to get a good perspective on what this intervention is doing, or in this other case, how much money you're saving on this product. Because if you're only saving 50 cents, you may say, forget it. But if you're saving $5,000, you may say, that's a big deal. That's a very helpful way to explain it, Tom. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Tom Bartal from the Richmond Area Health Center in Richmond, Maine, and we're discussing research made easy for the busy clinician, how to quickly and accurately evaluate research articles. So how do you know when a study actually contains something clinically significant? Is there a number you look for or some other indicator, Tom? I think when I'm looking for clinical significance, I'm not just looking at numbers, but I want to see first, does this fit the people I'm working with? Is this study relevant to the population I'm going to be working with? And what were they actually studying? The first thing I look for is what was the primary endpoint in the study? What were they looking for in the study? And then was that endpoint met or not? Sometimes studies look for a primary endpoint, and sometimes there's secondary endpoints, and then sometimes the articles start to talk about all different kinds of things that weren't part of the primary endpoint. It's important to remember when looking at a research study, what were they looking to find out in this study? What was that primary endpoint? And if that primary endpoint is not achieved or met, then really the secondary endpoints and most of the other data they're talking about is pretty irrelevant. What also happens I see in studies is that they find their primary endpoint and they may achieve or meet their primary endpoint, but then they start doing sub-analysis and and taking the data apart and trying to make some conclusions about that data, which isn't really what the study was intended to find out. So when reading a study, the most important thing is, what was that primary endpoint? Was it met? And is that something that I need to look for in my patients? 
The second thing I look for is, what was the population they're dealing with? If the study dealt with 60-year-old males with coronary artery disease, and I'm working with 60-year-old females without coronary artery disease, that data may not even apply to my patients. So the studies are done with a certain population, and does that population match with the population I'm working with? If they're looking at depression in 30-year-old women and I'm taking care of 50-year-olds, the data on the outcomes may not be relevant. Another important piece of information is what was the time frame of the study? If there's a drug that can reduce the chance of a heart attack that was a year long, it's not as significant as preventing the risk of a heart attack over 10 years' time because we know the longer time period, the more likely someone is to have a heart attack. So what was the time frame? Are they looking at a study that looks over a long or short period of time, and how does that match with the patients I'm looking at? And then, of course, what was the baseline risk? What was someone's chance of having a heart attack or a stroke or whatever they're looking at without the intervention? A 50% risk reduction may not be clinically significant if your baseline risk is low. If you buy one lottery ticket and I double your chance, it's pretty insignificant. If we're looking at stroke risk and your baseline risk of a stroke is 1 in 500 and I can cut that in half, it's not as big of a deal as if your baseline stroke risk is 1 in 100 or even 1 in 20, and cutting that in half would be much more clinically significant. So looking at clinical significance isn't a black and white sort of answer. We need to look at the data and synthesize it with our medical knowledge, with our knowledge of the patient and their baseline risks. Are the drug companies being deceptive when they speak about a study's positive findings? I don't think they're being deceptive. I think, uh, you know, drug reps are, are like any salesperson, and they might not like me calling them like used car dealers, but, but they're selling something. And their goal is to sell what they have, and they're going to tell me the best things they can about their product. I don't really find them lying about their product or even necessarily being deceptive. They just aren't giving always the full picture. The other day, a drug rep was in showing me about his drug, and he showed me a big colorful slide, PowerPoint slide, saying his drug has a 48% stroke reduction. But he didn't have any data on what population, the age of that population, how many were men, how many were women. I asked him what their absolute risk reduction was, and he didn't have any of that data. They, they typically don't get asked these questions, and I think these are the kind of questions we want to ask them. They want us to see this data, 48% risk reduction in stroke, and say, wow, that's really good. I think as clinicians, we need to be educated and say, tell me more about this, and then ask them some questions to get further information from them. We need to be able to really ask them good questions so that we don't feel intimidated by what they're saying. So that relates to how we can better respond to drug representatives coming in to detail us and pointing out highlights from research studies. Additional suggestions you have for this kind of interaction, Tom, would be? We often find that they're in control because they're approaching us. Maybe we didn't even plan to see this person. They are well studied on what they have to show us, on the limited data they have. And we may have just a couple seconds to look at it, and often we don't have the full study to look at. So I think, you know, typically I like to, when I see it, I say, what was the absolute risk reduction? What was the population you're dealing with? Ask them a few questions, and often they don't know the answers to those questions, but it stops them in their tracks, and then they say, well, I'll get you the full study, or I'll have someone contact you. But it sort of equalizes us, because I think when they come in, I used to feel like they were overpowering me. They had all the answers and just wanted me to be wowed. And I'm not saying their drugs are bad. There's some really good drugs out there. I think uh, we give them to too many people that don't need them. So do you meet with drug representatives in your clinic, Tom? I do meet with them. What I do is I uh, have them schedule an appointment time with me for 15 minutes during my lunch, and I don't have them bring a lunch. I bring my own lunch and schedule it at my time frame. So I'm not meeting them between patients. 
I'm not meeting them over a lunch they brought in, but I like to meet them when I'm more in control and have some time. And often they'll do a follow-up meeting after I've read the study because sometimes they'll have the original study that I haven't had time to read. So I ask to read the original study and they often have a copy or can get a copy and then I can look at it together with them after I've had more thorough time to read it. Although it doesn't take long. Sometimes while they're here in about five minutes' time, I can glance at a study and have at least some good questions to ask them about their product or about the study. So with that in mind, Tom, what should a clinician look for when reviewing the full research study? Hopefully they will have the full study after listening to this program. There are just a couple points, and and with a little bit of practice, like I said, you can probably review these in about five minutes' time. First of all, I like to look at who was sponsored the study, and sometimes we don't read that. Sometimes it's hard to find, but often these studies are sponsored by a drug company, and that doesn't mean they're a bad study, but I sort of want to keep that in mind. Next, I look at, was the study a valid study? Was it a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind study? Or was it an observational study or a retrospective study, which doesn't give us as good a data. It gives us some data that can be useful, but is this a valid study? The next thing I think is very important to look for, as I mentioned earlier, is that what was the primary endpoint? Because that's really what the study was looking for. When I told you about the PowerPoint slide they showed with the 48% risk reduction in stroke, in this particular trial, I had no idea what the primary endpoint was in that trial because I didn't see the study. So that may have not even been the primary endpoint of the study. And if that's the case, it may not even be relevant data from the study. So always look at the primary endpoint. The drug reps or who's ever showing you the study, or you may just be reading it yourself. And look, even if you read the abstract or the summary at the beginning, sometimes the summary and the abstract have little or nothing to do with the primary endpoint. Then I look at the population they study because I want to see, is that a population I'm working with? Or which parts of my population I work with will this study apply to? The next thing, as I mentioned before, I look at the time frame of the study. Was this a study looking over a two-week time period, a one-year time period, five years, ten years? How long were they studying this population? And then what was the baseline risk? So what did placebo do is what I want to look at. What's the baseline risk of having this condition, be it an MIS stroke, osteoporosis, hip fracture, whatever? I want to know what the baseline risk was in that particular study. What is the absolute risk reduction then? Not just the relative risk reduction, but what was the absolute risk reduction as we discussed earlier? And finally, I like to look at what did placebo do? For example, in some diabetes studies, I'll see them showing me A1C changes. And with their drug, the A1C dropped, for example, 2%. What I might see, though, with the placebo is that the placebo actually went up 1%. So the placebo got worse by 1%. The intervention group got better by 2%. That equals a 3% change compared to placebo when you're looking at it. But we don't see placebos in our practice clinically. I may only see a 1% drop because I don't know what placebo does or how placebo gets worse in my patients. I don't have placebo. So I always like to see what placebo does. And if placebo is getting worse, that might mean you see a bigger effect from the intervention than you clinically may see in your practice. Thank you so much, Tom Bartal, nurse practitioner from Richmond Health Center in Richmond, Maine. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today and so informative. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.